0: Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Carlos Pena. Carlos Pena, a terrific slugger back in his day, and now a terrific analyst for MLB Network, and one of the friendliest fellows you will ever come across in a locker room or on a podcast, or I assume in the corner store. Uh, Very interesting guy to talk to, and uh, just a ball of positive energy in all the best possible ways. It's cool, you know, he, he... He played under Joe Madden, and we get into analytics, and we talk about all that stuff, and he talks about sort of the limitations of analytics, and then as soon as I bring something up, I'm like, yeah, and then we just bounce right back into it. So he can be enthusiastic in in all directions. One thing I talked to him about, and I have this stat committed to memory for some reason, uh, is that Pena, at one point in his career, I don't know if that was his final number, but when people would shift against him, and he was a big, you know, not fast, left-handed slugger. So when infields would shift against him, at one point, I don't remember the exact point, but he went 15 for 25, bunting for hits. And he's like, yeah, that's right. And he would practice buns, And he took a lot of pride and that and started laughing. And uh, we had fun with things like that. So I, you'll really dig this. It's uh, like over an hour of candor with a guy who had uh, terrific success in the recent past. And and had all this serendipity happen. I'm not going to sh- uh, ruin it for you, but there was almost no career at all, and then there was a career. But then he was going to get cut one time, and then something happened. It was just all these things. And and um, you know, if you're religious, and you can ascribe it to what higher power. If you're not, you just say, well, weird stuff happens. But it was. It's amazing the sliding door situations that happen with professional athletes. Maybe with all of us, it could have gone this way, but it turns out to have gone that way. I really, really thought that stuff. Uh, was was interesting, and, and he has a good uh, kind of perspective on how all that went down. So I think you'll enjoy uh, the podcast with Carlos Pena. I think you'll also enjoy the first of this week's sponsors, friends, and that is SeatGeek. SeatGeek, a longtime sponsor of the John Carey podcast, and we love them so very much. It's the best place to buy or sell tickets to anything you could possibly imagine, to a sporting event, to a concert, what have you. I have used them personally for baseball games and hockey games and concerts, and they have been great. It's a color coded map can tell you exactly where you want to sit in the ballpark or Hockey arena or what have you, uh, and gives it to you straight. So, oh, it looks like the best place to sit today is behind home plate, or in the upper deck, or in the bleachers, or what have you. It will let you know, and they make it so easy to buy or sell the tickets to those events. It's fantastic, and also, and if you've been listening to this podcast, you know. But we're going to do the promo, friends. If you download the SeatGeek app and you enter the promo code Jonah today. You'll get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Yes. Have you never used SeatGeek? Have you been listening to this podcast for a while and heard me extol the virtues of SeatGeek for a long time and you still haven't gotten to SeatGeek? What the heck is wrong with you? Get on this already. 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Just enter the promo code JONAH. And you know what? We'll give you another promo code just for good measure. Special offer for all MLB purchasers. So the first one is you're using SeatGeek for whatever. Go for it. 20 bucks. But... You get $10 off of MLB tickets any game, even if you already use SeatGeek, by entering the promo code carry That's K-E-R-I. Promo code carry for $10 off of MLB tickets. So you can go ahead and use the promo code Jonah for $20 off of any first-time purchase or 10 bucks off of any MLB purchase by entering the promo code carry Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Quick programming notes, uh, the usual stuff, sportsnet.ca, you'll find my content about the Blue Jays. At CBS Sports, I've been writing more recently. Um... As I think you guys know, if you're listeners to the podcast, a lot of video going on at CBS Sports HQ. You can find that by going to CBSSports.com or the CBS Sports app, and you'll find me on camera uh, and or doing phoners and talking about baseball in that way. But also been writing a bunch lately, wrote about the Braves, wrote about the Yankees, wrote about Robinson Cano, and uh, probably a little bit more writing going forward uh, as we progress into the summer. So check all of that out, and uh, thank you for consuming what I put out there into the world. And hey, guess what? There's a new sponsor of the Jonah Carey Podcast, and it is Quip. Quip is a fantastic way to get your teeth clean. How about that? The truth is most of us are brushing our teeth wrong. Not long enough. We forget to change our brush on time. But it's all, we're, we're messing it up. Your teeth are very important. You've got one set of teeth in your life. Don't mess this up. You could use Quip. They're a fantastic electronic... Electric? Electronic. Toothbrush system. Uh, fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes. Still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. It's a built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist recommended. Two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. You got Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. So here we go. Here is the deal with Quip. Starts at 25 bucks. You go to getquip.com, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com, slash Jonah, and you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com, slash Jonah, again, dot com slash Jonah. What is wrong with your teeth? Get it together already. Get Quip. Thank you to Quip for sponsoring the podcast for the first time, and hopefully not the last. And here we go. It is the latest edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast with Carlos Pena. Enjoy. Alright, we are now recording. Carlos Pena, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's uh, truly an honor to to join you today.
0: I appreciate it. So, um, lots to talk about, uh, especially the Rays days. I spent the better part of three years writing a book about the Rays, so I feel like we can go deep on that. But I want to get to some... Yeah, for sure. Fun story, for sure. But I want to get to some of the early stuff, Um, even just going way, way back, because I find cultural moves pretty interesting that you're somebody you know i'm thinking back to when i was a kid and if i was forced to move somewhere completely foreign to me that would have been a challenge and you moved from the dominican republic to, to the uh boston area at age 12 that that's a that's an interesting one that's an interesting transition definitely old enough to remember definitely old enough to have built bonds in the dr and here you are going off to another country to a totally different culture uh, what was that like for you and your family? Was that a, a tough adjustment for you? Did you catch on pretty quick? Or how was it learning the new language? How did you go about doing all that?
1: You know what? Uh, it was extremely difficult. Um, like you said, I had um, many friends in the Dominican Republic's relationships, friendships that uh, all of a sudden they were practically in a second In the past, you know, it's like, wait, I won't be able to go out there and play with my friends anymore. I can't, I don't know anybody where I'm going. And first we went actually to New York. We were in Long Island uh, to be specific. And there I didn't know anybody. And eventually we settled in Haverhill, Massachusetts, uh, because there were opportunities for jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And dad thought mom that that was the best place to be because they obviously needed a job to sustain their family. So it was uh, incredibly difficult, not only for me, but also for my siblings. It was extremely difficult for my parents because they had left their lives behind in the Dominican Republic. They were professionals in the Dominican Republic. They had a social environment that they were perfectly content with. So that is why when I go back and talk about the move, and even when I reminisce with my parents about it, I thank them. Uh, because I'm like, wow! You just gave up your lives, uh, your livelihood, because right. you you worked so hard to become an engineer, an electromechanical engineer. My father, my mother was um, an accountant and also a school teacher. And like, wow! You went to school for all those years, worked so hard to uh, go up the, the the ladder, really. And we were perfectly established in Dominican Republic. We had a good life. And all of a sudden, just because you thought that you could give your kids better opportunities and just a brighter horizon, you make the move. That is the most uh, sacrificial thing that you could possibly do. But that's love, right? That That is love. So every single time I talk to my parents about this, I make sure I thank them. And I make sure I let them know. It's not just like, hey, Dad, thank you. It's like, no, no, no. Mom, I, I understand. Thanks so much for the sacrifice mm. that you set forth to give me a better life, and uh, it was extremely difficult because of language. It was extremely difficult because of just culture. Um, but uh, I was able to, I would say, adapt quite quickly. Uh, so after you get over the 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 trauma, right, of what's happening, yeah. you're like, okay, here I am. What am I going to do now? And eventually, I was able to just uh, pull myself together. Um, and, as a family, we pulled each other together and started working towards you know our goals, our dreams and you know here I am today, you know over twenty years later yeah. um, and you know what a
0: story you know it 's a great story to tell nowadays for sure um i 'm really struck to whenever I talk to any player from the Dominican about their early influences I had David Ortiz on not long ago and you know he talked about idolizing Pedro and he went on to play with Pedro and they won a world series and that's a great story and you get all kinds of different ones if you go back a generation people say gosh Tony Fernandez was the coolest player I've ever seen in my life it depends on how old you are It depends on your generation did you glom on to those influences before you left the DR at age 12 were you a baseball rat always playing outside and modeling your swing after a certain guy or did baseball come uh more when you moved to the States
1: You know, uh, it's funny that you ask because I think it would be easy to assume that, you know, I was a good player my whole entire life, you know, and that I've been swinging and I'm good for ever since I was born. And (laughs) that's really not the case. You know, I I was a struggling player, especially early in my career, but Mm. there was this love for the game, you know, but I couldn't hit a ball fair. Let me tell you, Jonah, I couldn't hit a ball fair. I was always late, so I couldn't get the head out. And uh, my dad was so special because I remember, like if it was yesterday, after striking out three times and just hitting a couple foul balls late down the third baseline, Mm -hmm. foul, my father used to walk with me and go, wow, son, did you see those line drives you hit foul? That was like an awesome foul ball. (laughs) And he used to celebrate my foul balls. And again, that's one of those things that I thank him for because he kept encouraging me. One of the things that happened that immediately just opened my eyes was when I was at home watching a game and George Bell came up to the plate. Oh, great player. He was with the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. And my dad goes, hey, you know, that's uh, that's George Bell. That's one of the best players right now from the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching him and he hits a home run in Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. And I remember that moment being pivotal because I was like, I want to play there. That's all I said. It's like, I want to play there. (laughs) And for the first time, I stated that I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. Yeah. And it was because of George Bell. So my player would probably be George Bell. uh, And then from then on out, I started like kind of working towards getting better, Hmm. you know, with with some sort of north and a direction. Um, Because before, I was just playing baseball to play baseball. And all of a sudden, now I had a goal and a mark to shoot and aim for, which makes all the difference in the world. And Jonah, for the first time in my career, my baseball career, you know, I work, I practice the whole entire week. And I remember even everything I was doing. I was actually hitting popcorn kernels because I heard that that was one of the things that that could help me. Wow. So I started, I, I hit those the whole entire week. So on Saturday, the official game comes around because the organized leagues, they play on Saturdays and they practice on Wednesdays just like here, like Little League. And on that Saturday, for the first time in my baseball life, I hit the ball fair. Hmm. I hit two triples in the gap, in the right center field gap. From then on out, okay, I was I was competitive. I was actually pretty good
0: after that. So I remember that like if it were were yesterday. Amazing. Popcorn curls. I love it. Um, I want to ask you about, and we're going to jump back into baseball as well, but uh, one thing struck me biographically. Uh, You mentioned that your dad was involved in uh, electrical engineering, and that was your major. That's so interesting. I think you're the first ball player I've ever talked to with an electrical engineering major, (laughs) in your case at Northeastern. Let's and again we'll go back to baseball. But let's say that baseball had not worked out. That even though you would you know honed your skills, you went to Northeastern. That yeah, you just didn't cut it. Is that the field yeah. you would have pursued? You would have become an engineer? Did you did you was that really you know was it just okay? I'm going to follow in the footsteps of my dad, or did you have a really avid interest in that? Because I'm I'm fascinated by that.
1: Yes, I was I was definitely encouraged by my father. I loved math. You know, I loved mm-hmm. anything that had to do with angles and with with uh, drawing, you know, blueprints and um, just coming up with uh, strategies to actually make a project come into fruition, and it was so fascinating to me that I wanted to do that. I also had uh, an interest in film, so I thought that, that that was my minor. So I thought that that both of those things together would be like, wow, I, I'm well prepared because I can be extremely creative in the film industry, let's just say, or in the you know video production industry. Uh, which is kind of funny because right now I am basically doing that. I'm on yeah. the MLB network. Yes. So it's right up my alley. and That's why I enjoy it so much. But um, I thought the combination of both, it was like bringing the latest technology and uh, engineering uh, mentality to, to be creative. You know, I, w- I was ready to go. And let me tell you something, school to me, is of extreme value and has always been. And that's something that my parents have always talked about—the importance of education. To the to the degree of like even when I was speaking Spanish, um, and my mother heard me pronounce uh, a word incomplete, you know, incomplete word or say something, pronounce it wrongly, my mother would immediately correct it. It's like that's not we—that's not the way we speak in this house. Hmm. So you better speak correct Spanish, even though I know there's slang out there finish your sentence, finish your words. We have a tendency in Spanish that when we speak fast, we don't finish our words and we just speak slang. So from the very young age, my father was like, you need to read this book. You need to read this book. You need to you know, give me good grades. That's so important. So all that, when I got to the United States, just became natural to me. Like I wanted to ace every single test I took. Hmm. I wanted to get the best grades possible and I would prepare for that. It was so important to me. So Electrical engineer, engineering was just challenging, and I'm like, I'll take on that challenge. I want to do that, and also the scope of, of everything that it entails was very attractive to me because it was so. I felt it was powerful, so I wanted to pursue that. And I did not slack in school. I really, I really went to town on that thing. I play baseball, mm-hmm. but my schoolwork
0: was. Uh, I was all in on that as well. You ultimately became a first-round pick of the Texas Rangers in 1998, and three years later you get the call to the show, and I'm basically – I cannot get enough of asking this question of Billy Wagner I had on recently and just various players, different generations, current, past, whatever. I always want to know what it was like, what it was like the day that they got the call to the show and the day that they stepped on the field for the first time in the big league. So what do you remember about when you first found out and then ultimately when you, you know, took the field for the first time and stepped up to the plate for the first time.
1: I must preface uh, all this because even getting drafted.
0: Yeah. In the first
1: round. was unbelievable. You know, Mm. why? Simply because out of high school, I wasn't even known, Mm. you know, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you right now, I wanted to play professional baseball and I also wanted to go to school, but I wanted to give it a try as much as I possibly could to get drafted out of high school. Why not? I get started earlier. Right. And my grades were like straight A's, you know, I had a great GPA and all that stuff. So I knew college was right there. So I'm like, okay, let me see if I can at least uh, see if I can sign. And I remember begging, begging a Royals uh, area scout that I was going to sign, even if he just gave me the plane ticket. As a matter of fact, look, don't even give me the plane ticket. I'll just, I'll pay it for myself, okay? And give me the minimum salary that you can give me the minors. I don't care about money. Let's just sign, please. And he denied. He said, you know, very politely, but he said no. (laughs) And I'm like, wow. I remember being devastated. And I was in my uh, grandmother's uh, bed uh, and I was like all depressed. I was like, wow, I cannot believe, you know, even if I was willing to play for free, he wouldn't take me. So I get over that, you know, and I just keep on going and I go to college and I go through some difficulties and um, I wanted to get into the Cape Cod League because I heard the Cape Cod League was the place to be, and yet no team wanted me in the Cape. I would call them every single day, and they said, "No, hmm. we already set. We don't need you." And by the grace of God, let me tell you how I get into the Cape Cod League. Yes, the player, the first baseman for the Worm gateman, did not get the good enough grades, so his oh, GPA wow. was not good enough, so he wasn't eligible. play and of course they waited all the way until the end of the semester and all of a sudden the call comes, he's like he didn't make the grade so he cannot play and Wareham was without a first baseman a week before the season started so John Wilde he rests in peace, the general manager of the Wareham game, and saw me and said, would you like to play in the Cape? <laughs> and okay. I was like, are you serious? Where do I sign? This is what I've been waiting for and I've been calling everybody about. And none of my efforts really worked. And look how I get the chance wow. to go to the Cape. So I accept. I go to the Cape and I absolutely had the best summer, you know, ever, right? And I have the MVP of the league and I just crushed the Cape Cod League. And mm-hmm. now I get drafted in the first round the very next year. That's why I needed to preface the story. Oh, my gosh. So when I got that call, you know, I burst into tears. You know, I I fell to my knees and gave thanks and make sure that, man, I know the hand of God was definitely uh, had to do with everything. So um, as you could imagine, that call meant so much to me. Mm. And then, of course, when you finally get the call to be in the major leagues, I remember standing in the on-deck circle. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm in Texas, I'm in the on deck circle, and everything slowed down. Wow! As a matter of fact, which was crazy, when I stepped into the batter's box for the first time in the major leagues, everything was running slow. Hmm. It was like the most calm I've ever felt. Wow! On a on a, on in a, a, a box, it was the weirdest thing. It was like a, and that's the culmination of everything I've worked for, and I felt this overwhelming calm. So those moments. Are very clear. They're, they have been embedded into my mind, and I could recall them like if they happened just yesterday because of the degree of, of how special they are to me.
0: Hmm. We're going to, I love the Cape Cod League story. We're going to stick this in our hip pocket because there's a 2007 spring training story, which is maybe my favorite Carlos Pena story, and it was so random and very similar. We're going to talk about that in a minute later on because it's very, very similar to this. Um, before we get to that, I want to ask you, uh, you ultimately get traded, you got traded a couple times in your career, and, uh, the first trade was to Oakland, and, you know, like, I've read Moneyball, I've watched the movie, and I gotta tell you something, partner, you got a raw deal, man. Scott Hatterberg was a fine ball player, but they're like, oh yeah, Hatterberg, we got this guy at first base, we don't think he's very good. Dude, you were a first round draft pick, and you were in the lineup, and they're like, yeah, we think we could do better or whatever, and I'm not looking to, you know, be mean to, the Oakland A's or to Hatterberg or whatever, but come on. I mean, we've got to stand up for ourselves a little bit on this stuff. You ended up having an excellent career, and it was like, oh, yeah, he's a minor character on the road to uh, to uh Moneyball Greatness with Jeremy Giambi and Scott Hatterberg. I don't know about that characterization. It kind of annoys me a little bit. I mean that in kind of a fun way, but I was like, what is this? Carlos is a great player. What are you talking about?
1: You know, that is why I believe that. All these numbers, the sabermetrics,
0: yeah.
1: are extremely valuable. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Okay, We would be fools to totally ignore them. On the contrary, I think we should use them to our advantage. Right. But there's also a point where you replace your common sense yeah. for just to trust some formulas. And that is wrong. You yeah. still have to... Make sure they utilize the numbers to your advantage instead of letting the numbers dictate your decisions. So right there, I thought that was exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, I was on a roll. I was doing pretty good. I was hitting ninth, Jonah. That yeah. was my my, bat, my my spot in the lineup. So think about it. I was hitting away in the ninth spot. Yet I had like, I don't know, I thought it was like close to 10 home runs. Uh, I was hitting somewhere in the, the low 200s, mid 200s. I play playing incredible defense and yeah. come up with pretty big hits. So it's like, really? Why would you not want your number nine hitter to be so productive? Yes. You know? And all of a sudden, you know, now that I look at the movie, I mean I watch the movie and I'm like, okay, is that really what happened? Obviously the <laughs> movie I understand is going to be modified. Right. Uh there are very few truths in there also there's uh some embellishment here and there yes. on how things went down it's not exactly accurate it was a great movie i really enjoyed it yes. except that obviously i know that it wasn't you know word by word or you know moment by moment what exactly happened but it served its purpose the funny thing is this jonah later on in my career i i became or i was exactly the player that they would um Desire, which was a player that hits for power. Yeah. A player that walks a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what what I did (laughs) my whole entire career. Those were my strengths. Yeah. So, I think those are very important things to note is the fact that, you know, Moneyball was a great movie. It definitely told the story of how Sabermetrics got started and utilized. Uh, the Oakland Ace went on and had an unbelievable year that year. Yep. Uh, however, you know, I don't think there's any mention of, Barry Sito, Mark Mulder, Tim and Tim Hudson, Hudson <laughs> in the whole entire movie, which does, does, doesn't do them uh, the, the, any justice, really. Yeah. So it's very important to note that. Um, but, again, I enjoyed the movie. It was a great movie. And uh, the funny thing is that it turned out exactly the player that they would desire uh, at the end of the day. Uh, so really interesting, uh, the turn of events,
0: uh, how everything went down. Uh definitely is want to ask you about, uh, what, I guess you could call it fluctuations. So I think that a lot of us, as fans, maybe as media too, we think of ballplayers as kind of, there's like a smooth curve to it. Like you start your career, you're getting used to it, then you start to get better in your mid-20s. You get to your peak, and then there's like a plateau, then you go down later in your 30s, and that's about it. But it didn't necessarily go that way for you. You had a really great, again, you go to another different team with Detroit, 2004, an outstanding season, and then for whatever reason, 2005, there were some struggles, and 2006, ultimately, you're not able to make the ball club, you end up in the Yankees system, you end up with the Red Sox, you don't really stick, and at that point, you're a young guy, you're very talented, we know the ending now, we know that you go on to have a great career with all-star appearances and all that stuff. What happens when things get out of sync like that in the middle of your career? Was it a matter of, you know, a hidden injury? Was it just you lost your groove? How does a young guy who should be coming up on his prime just kind of take a step back in that way? Because especially considering all the greatness that came afterwards, it looks like it's a misprint. You look at your baseball reference page, you're like, what happened in those years? What was it that kind of bounced around a little bit for you?
1: You know, uh, over the years. I I have been highly industrious. I think to to a fault. Mm. So I was always working extremely hard. You know, that was something that no one um would challenge me on. Yeah, you know, I was a little bit it was a little bit too much. And when you do that, you have a tendency of doing two things. Either you're going to get extremely good at the right thing or you pro- probably also could get extremely good at the wrong thing. Mm. So it's very important to understand what's truly happening at the plate, which is something that now, wow, I understand, I would say, clearly, extremely clearly, you know. Um, uh, But when I was playing, I was relying, now that I look back, I was relying a lot on my skill, Mm -hmm. only on my skill. My strategies were not good, Mm. They were kind of like a default mode. I talk about this in the network all the time. I would go up to the plate. I would look for a pitch out over the plate to hit the other way. That was the approach, and that was for everybody. Mm. That is such a huge mistake. So unless the pitchers weren't somewhat contributing to what I was trying to do, then I would make outs. I wouldn't put good swings on baseballs. Yeah. I would put a lot of strain on my talent. For example, if I'm sitting on a fastball away and the, the pitcher throws a fastball in, I am relying on my ability to be quick enough to react and get the barrel to the inside pitch. What about if I'm a slightly late? Now I'm out. Hmm. Yeah, I would get there sometimes. Um, and I remember, wow, uh, Eric Chavez came up to me. And this is the, the the overconfidence, and I would say in a sense not – I wouldn't say it was intentional, but in a sense arrogance Yeah. to say to yourself, I am so good that I don't have to have a plan. I remember saying that to Eric um, Chavez. He goes, yeah. what's your plan? He said, I don't have one. I just see the ball. Hmm. Wow. I sound like Bruce Lee, right? Come on. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really, and i looking back at it, that's silly. Yeah. So that's when you see all these fluctuations because all of a sudden, as soon as I went into a rut, I would immediately think that it had to do with my swing. I immediately thought that it had to do with something that I was doing wrong in my move when in reality it was everything to do with timing and with strategy and with my approach at the play. But I never went to that. So it never occurred to me that I was getting jammed, blown away inside, you know, swinging underneath fastballs when they threw them inside and slightly elevated. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm doing everything I'm always been able to do, uh, but all of a sudden I can't get to that pitch. Uh, you know, what's going on? Is my skill diminishing? I'm like, now looking back at that, that was just bad strategizing. Hmm. So that's why you see all the fluctuations in my career because I didn't understand that. And even later, even when I kept and came back and had incredible success, I also scratched my head when I was struggling and I thought it had everything to do with my mechanics and nothing to do with my approach or my strategies at the plate. So you know, even though I had a great career, I would have done it differently. You know, if I could go back. Um I don't know if you heard the quote of uh I read this quote in the Greatest Salesman in the World by Ogmandino that says that you know, sometimes experience, you know, it's definitely an, an incredible thing. Uh, however, and it teaches you a valuable lesson. However, the value of the lesson that you learned with experience, its diminishes
0: hmm. because it takes
1: too long for you to learn it. And at the end of the day, when you actually learned your lesson, it's too late. So basically experience is wasted on pretty much, you know, an old man <laughs> you, know I mean? you can no longer use it to your advantage yeah so many times i feel that way as far as hitting is concerned so that's what i would attribute um my my just uh, inconsistencies throughout the years uh it's not working on the right thing you know what i mean yeah working really hard yes
0: but not exactly on the right thing you know yeah, they say work smart, not hard. I guess that's what they're talking about. Yes, no
1: doubt about it. No so, doubt about it.
0: So 2007, you end up at Tampa Bay Rays. Tampa Bay Devil Rays at that time uh, give you they, – they they, they take a flyer. They say, all right, this guy's got talent. He's a first-round draft pick. We're going to sign him to a minor league contract. Lots of guys get signed to minor league contracts in spring training. No problem. But the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at that time – not a good team, by the way, at that time uh, – have a guy named Greg Norton on the team. Greg Norton, perfectly respectable veteran hitter. Be, be fine on the team, nothing wrong with that, and it gets to the end of spring training, and you're brought into, uh, I assume, the manager's office, and you're told, hey, Greg Norton is our first baseman, we're going to have to let you go. Tell me what happened after that moment up until opening day, because a lot changed from that conversation to what ultimately went down. Wow, well,
1: Jonah, and if you would allow me <laughs> yes,
0: please, to preface
1: it all. i do all the preface, uh, yes. Remember, remember that I was without a team. I was done. I was out of baseball in 2006. I was done. I didn't have a job. And I remember talking to Scott Boris, who was my agent at the time, and he would say, Carlos, uh, we don't have anything for you. I'm like, wow, no team is interested in me? And I remember being in the bus, by the way, had a horrible, horrible winter ball season. And I was sitting in the bus in Santiago, Hmm. Dominican Republic. Wow after a game, and I am leaning against the window, like, almost in tears, like, wow, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. You know, like, that's that's the feeling, the dreadful feeling I'm getting. So faith has always been so important to my life, so I cannot speak uh, without it. You know, I have to definitely mention uh, the impact that it has had in my life. And I'm sitting there, and it's January the 23rd, and finally Scott Boris calls me. And he says to me, hey, we got you an invitation to spring training. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, well, spring training, you're just basically going to go over there and see if you can make the team. I didn't even know what that meant because (laughs) I've always thought I had a spot, right? Right. I'm like, wow, okay, so it's a tryout. It's like, yeah, kind of. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And then that was January 23rd. And, you know, I remember grabbing a – uh, my devotional, you know, whatever. I was going to read the word of the day, and it was on Psalm 23. I was like, oh, this this makes sense. January 23rd, Psalm right. 23rd. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is pretty cool, you know. That's nice, you know. And I felt, you know what, oh, God, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm going to do the best I can to take advantage of it. And then I get a call from the clubhouse manager from the Devil Race at that time. Mm-hmm. And he goes, hey, Carlos, I just wanted to welcome you to the club. I just wanted some sizes and, you know, your helmet and all that stuff. And, uh, I give him the sizes, and then he goes, look, man, I, I don't know what number you've worn in the past, but we really only have one to give you. So uh, it is what it is. I'm sorry that I cannot give you a choice. Uh, so it's going to be number 23. Okay. When he said that, I almost fell off my chair. Wow. Because remember, it's January the 23rd. Sure. I just read Psalm 23, yeah. and the, out of the blue, the clubhouse manager says that the only number he has was Number 23. And I was like, I'll take it right now. Don't worry about it. Because I knew, felt like God's hand was in it. Just the way it was when I was in Cape Cod. You know, so I was like, whoa, something special here. This is special. So I go into this spring training with this unbelievably expectancy of good. Yeah. You know, I don't do well in spring training. I don't do anything special. I just have that type of attitude. It's unbelievable. I'm, this. You cannot fake. You cannot even fabricate it. It was just uh, pretty much... A, a result of my environment result of the moment result of the circumstances so i get caught at the end of spring training he tells me that there's no room and this is what i have the audacity to say at that moment i don't, don't ask me why i said this but i said this i'm like joe joe madden <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and also uh, andrew friedman yeah I'm like joe andrew i just wanted to thank you guys for this opportunity but whatever you're telling me right now that I'm supposed to go home, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm going to go home. I'm like, at that moment, I'm thinking, uh, Jonah, I'm like, what do I got to lose? Let me just act crazy. Sure. I'm going to just say what's in my heart. Yeah. So it's like, I don't believe anything you say. I'm going to pack up my stuff because you probably need the space right now. But I just want to let you guys know that I'm going to be on opening day this Monday. I'll be there. (laughs) They're laughing. They laughed. They laughed and they thought it was funny. And they're like, "Uh, okay, you know, like, you know, you're crazy. (laughs) In in a nice way, in a nice way. You know, thank you so much for your efforts. You were great this spring training. So Jonah, I drove home. I went all the way to Orlando and I was sitting on the couch. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is crazy. You know, like, I know something that's going to happen. I don't know what. And I remember sitting there, like, with this expectancy of something. Like, what? I don't know. Yeah. And hours later, hours later, even after, you know, the, the plan was solidified. You know, I was out of the team. Yeah. I had no more contract. I was yeah. out of baseball again. And I had a conversation with my agent. And, you know, he's totally, you know, negative about everything. He's like, hey, man, you know, it doesn't look good for you. All the <laughs> rosters are full. You, It's going to be really difficult yeah. for you to to find a job, especially right now, I'm like, wow. But I'm sitting on the couch, expecting something, and then my phone started ringing and buzzing. And I looked at my phone, and this is what my thought immediately. I said, "It's happening." <laughs> that, that which I am expecting, yeah. The miracle is happening right now. Wow. This is this is what I was feeling, you know, the moment that everything was confirmed with the clubhouse manager called me and said that he was going to give me number 23 after I read Psalm 23 after I get called January the 23rd. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my phone and it said, Greg Norton is hurt. We need a first baseman immediately. Yep. So I renegotiated the contract <laughs> because it was unbelievable. It was yeah. way better than I could have gotten at the beginning. Sure. And, you know, not by much, but you know, I felt a little bit more secure. And I was in a major league ball club. And I remember driving all the way back to um, Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. By the way, let me tell you that that was Resurrection Sunday. Wow! You know, and uh, it, it, it's a beautiful story. So, yeah, I get to the the trop, and I assume I walk in there. There's a meeting. All my teammates were just nodding. They just looked at me and they nodded. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm just here for the ride, man. This is this is a miracle. That just materialized, and I'm in the middle of it. I'm just going to ride it. And that was my whole entire attitude the rest of the year. Mm. One that you cannot fake. I was so free. I knew that I was on borrowed time. I knew that I wasn't even supposed to be there. So all I had to do was just give it all I had. And I crushed. I absolutely crushed. I was out of my mind that whole entire year. You sure 46 were. 46 home runs. 121
0: RBIs, definitely career best, yeah. 282 batting average. I, I went crazy, Jonah. 411 on base, 627 slugging. You walked 103 times, second in the league to a guy named Alex Rodriguez in home runs. You were set franchise records in home runs, RBI, slugging percentage, on base percentage, and walks. So, yeah, pretty good year, I would say. Not too bad at all. <laughs> It's, uh, it's a great game. You know what? I wish I could have bottled that. I was like, whatever this is, <laughs> I want to do it every year. <laughs> well, and the thing about bottling is that even though that was your best year individually, it set the stage for 2008. And 2008, to this day, I would argue, and the Rays did not ultimately win the World Series that year, but I would argue it's one of the better, better stories in recent baseball memory because the 2007 Devil Rays, through no fault of yours, obviously you had an awesome season, but pitching was rough. Defense was rough. It wasn't a, it wasn't a finished team at that point. It was a last place team. And you're in the AL East, where you're facing the Yankees and the Red Sox, who have more money than God and have tons of talent flying off the rosters, big name guys, superstars, or whatever. And you're the, you know, the Devil Rays just transformed into the Rays. You literally exercise the devil, and you're going to go up against these teams with no expectations at all. And it becomes one of the greatest joy rides in recent memory in uh, in baseball. Take me through that 2008 season. I've talked to. So many guys over the years about that season, and uh, including Madden and Zobris and a whole bunch of other dudes, Cliff Floyd. And they all just they, – they have a sparkle when they talk about it, that it was just like, <laughs> we're the underdogs, and we kicked ass, and that was that. So wh- what do you remember about that year, which is, gosh, it's 10 years ago now?
1: It was amazing. I often say that that's the most fun I have ever had playing baseball, wow. including Little League Forget it. Like, everything. This is the most fun I've ever had. And you said it. You know, we go from being the worst team in baseball to being the best team in baseball. Because even though we lost, I thought we were a better team, you know. Now, I must say this. On 2007, when we have never in the history of the race, in the decade that the race had been in existence, had never won more than 60 games. Yeah. Never, so we're sitting there, and I'm walking in the last game of the season, and I see that Joe Madden and Andrew Freeman are sitting in their office. I went up there, and I say, "Hey, guys, look, uh, I know that the team didn't perform well, you know we didn't win, but there's something happening here again yeah. I'm, I'm here I am, I don't know, being bold and just telling them to keep their heads up or something, and they nodded, they were like encouraged by what I had to say, and they probably thought. You know, hey, he just had the best year of his career, so he can be positive. Yeah. It's so easy for him to do so, but I really meant it, and I said there's something special happening in this place. So mm-hmm. let's just hang in there. Let's keep the you know let's keep it going. Let's keep staying on track. Something happened. Something was happening. Of course, I never thought that it was going to be the World Series the very next year. Yeah. Pretty much with the same exact ball club. We did have some additions veteran additions like Cliff Floyd and Troy Percival. um, But the rest of the ball club was pretty much intact. Yep. You know? And we ended up going to the World Series, beating and pretty much trumping Titans like the Yankees, like the Red Sox. And I remember it all started in spring training where Joe Madden had this thing that it it was nine equals eight. And it was like, hey, if we play nine together, we will be uh, one of the eight final teams at the yep. end of the, of the year. And how bold for him to go out and say that when you know that your team has never won more than 60 games in the history of the franchise. Yeah. But that was our thing. That's what we talked about every single day. And it started in spring training. We won spring training, by the way. Spring hmm. training, we dominated. He's like, we're going to dominate from day one. Every single time we, stay, we step into the field, it matters. So in spring training, we weren't going through the motions. We were trying to beat some heads in. Yeah. You know, and we had we got into a fight with the with the Yankees in spring training. I mean, <laughs> we were we were that rough and let me tell you, that was that had an effect. Yeah. We got into a fight against the Yankees in spring training and let them know that even though this is not the old, you know, uh, just uh, run me over team like At the very least, we may lose a game, but we're not going to lose a fight.
0: (laughs) Well, you had Jeff Neiman on your team. I feel like Neiman alone is a good head start. You don't mess with Jeff Neiman.
1: He was a big dude. Neiman could take out four Yankees with one arm. He was that big. But that was huge. Johnny Gomes sprints from right field and tackles one of the Yankees. I Mm -hmm. think it was uh, Duncan Mm -hmm. that slid hard into Akinori Iwamura. And we sent a message that night. We weren't afraid of you anymore. You know, it didn't matter that it said Yankees on your jersey. And that was important. And we also got into a fight during the year against the Red Sox, which were the other Titan in the East. And we let them know. We checked them. We checked them, Jonah. We're like, hey, uh, don't mess with us. You know, we may lose a baseball game, but we're not going to lose this fight. So that happened as well. So we sent a message in Fenway Park. Um, And, of course, we were winning, man. We were on a roll. And we never stopped. It was it was amazing. It's the most fun I ever had playing baseball. When Akinori Iwamura stepped on second base yep. after a hot shot right at him, after Price made that pitch to Veritek. Look, I'm I'm telling you everything as it happened. He hits a one hopper to Akinori Iwamura. Iwamura grabs and steps on second base and jumps up in the air and throws his arms up. I almost passed out, man. <laughs> I thought it was like everything we've been through, everything I had been through, yeah. my whole entire career. Are you serious? I almost lost it. I almost just blacked out of emotion. I couldn't hold it in. I had tears in my eyes. It was crazy. It's the most fun I ever had playing baseball.
0: Oh man, I, I love all of that. I could picture the moment we're a leap too. It was that was a great great moment. Price was a beast in relief that year too. Oof. Um, I want to ask you about Madden and that story. And now ten years later, of course, the Madden story has been told many many times about. Merlot Joe, right? He'll bring you in for a glass of red wine and some chips and salsa and he'll entertain the media and he'll tell great stories and he reads books about psychology and we know, we know about the legend of Joe Madden. But what were your impressions of him back then as you were getting to know him a little bit in 07 and 08 and you know the nine versus nine equals eight and the inspirational stuff and all that. Back then and maybe even afterwards too, People can be critical. So they they say, ah, this is played out, and this guy, and it's a little much with the legend of Madden or whatever. But I can remember when I first met him and talked to him, I was like, no, no, I think it's genuine. I think this guy really does care about his players and really is an inspirational guy and and isn't just feeding them a line. He seems to be into this stuff, and he feels like it's going to work. What did you get all of this? When you first met him, were you like, what's up with all this stuff? Or were you like, oh, wow, I've never (laughs) met this manager before. I've never met a guy like this before. He's very interesting.
1: This was unbelievable, you know, when you mentioned this. Yeah. And you're talking about all, you know, corporations, organizations. Yeah. And the importance of management, you know, in your ability to make sure that you utilize your resources effectively. It's so important. I mean, these are like, this is managing one-on-one, whether you are working for, um, you know, any corporation or you're on a baseball field. Yeah. So now that I look back and I look at it with that lens, Joe was brilliant.
0: Mm.
1: Brilliant. Because instead of coming with the so-so status quo where you have a manager that it's really old school and that it's really all about discipline, that it's really all about uh just running a tight ship and you know and everything there's like a certain hierarchy that you must make sure that you abide um ab- abide to and you know uh, abide in um it's uh it was so crazy when I walk in there and I see how Joe handles it. Hmm. You're absolutely right at first I was like, Is this real
0: yeah.
1: like is this 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 guy for real because I've never seen anything like it you know it was Brilliant, because even though you didn't think he was doing it, he definitely set his hierarchy uh, uh, system, you know, and 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 everything there, where the team was able to police itself, because veterans had a little bit more of a role of leading than the rookies, and he had a, he gave the rookies a sense of uh, direction and, and a sense of of trying to accomplish a north uh, as well, and he did it all very subtly, very respectfully. Where none of us even noticed. We thought he didn't even had his hand in it, but he set it up that way. So that his resources, his players, and everything else that comes from the front office, he utilized it effectively and did not waste it. He made the most out of everything. That's why I always speak of that. Like the environment that I walked into was like the perfect environment for me hmm. at that particular moment in my career. So I go out and I have the best year of my career. Now, this is what's crazy. You cannot replicate that, you know, that, that feeling there. I mean, I always try to capture it, and I never was able to get the feeling I had in 2007, you know, as a team. You know, 2008, we go to the World Series. But I can say that my individual success, wow, man. I mean, without Joe Madden, I wouldn't be able to accomplish that. Hmm. You know, and he provided that environment where I could come in there and be myself and my talent was able to go out and express itself freely. And man, the, the results were just astonishing. But uh, Joe is the real deal. Joe is the real deal. That's how genuine he is. I mean, these are the conversations we had on the plane when no camera was rolling. Yeah. These are the conversations where we closed the door of his office and there was no reporter uh, you know, talking to us. And the conversations were like enlightening. Okay, this is him. He is genuine for sure.
0: Uh love all that stuff. I also love the post game dance parties that Joe Madden started which became of course legendary. That's that's a fun one too. Um <laughs> I want to actually, are you allowed to talk about that? Is there a statute of limitations on how that, cause I, at the time I was trying to report on it and I, I pull Jason Bartlett aside or whoever. I'd be like, Hey, what's up with that? He'd be like, I can't talk to you about it. It was like some sort of nuclear codes. Now that you're retired, can you talk about how the dance party started and what the deal was? Because none of us were ever allowed in the clubhouse. And it was like, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun in there.
1: No, it, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And yes, I mean, there was nothing um crazy. Well, it was kind of crazy because it's so totally different. But that's the way Joe allowed us to be. We were able to have fun. And we were able to enjoy it. He encouraged us to even speak up when we didn't agree, hmm. which is incredible. Like, what manager, what leader allows us to be disagreeable? What leader allows a player to say, you know, I don't think we should do that. You know, I don't think we should play the infield in this situation. Yeah. And the question we why? And I will... You know, give my two cents, and if he agreed, he'll be like, hmm, I'll, I'll take a look at that. I'll take a look at that. Or, no, Carlos, you know, uh, this is why we're doing it. And they'll be like, oh, wow, Joe, now it makes sense to me. Are you kidding me? Who does that? Yeah. Well, he understands that the only way he's going to be able to get the best out of every single player is if every single player can be themselves. Instead of having to conform to the status quo and kind of like Really be restricted. How in the world is talent supposed to flow when you have to be looking over your shoulder every single time? And let me tell you, this does not mean that there's no structure. This is what's funny. It made you disciplined because you had the choice of not being disciplined. Isn't that incredible psychology? So all of a sudden, all the younger players were so hardworking. So disciplined, they cared, and Joe didn't have to, or seemed, like he wasn't even moving a, a finger. He was policing. He instead it says, police yourself so no one else has to. Hmm. And that's one of the things that he used to say. We're going to err on the side of aggressiveness. you know. And I read an article, uh, last, just last night I was reading an article about allowing your workers to rebel, how powerful that is. Huh. In a sense, just giving giving your workers... Uh, free reign so that they can be themselves and bring the best of themselves every single day. Well, Joe Madden did that. He was able, he allowed his players to rebel, you know, and just be themselves. And that's the dance party right there. After we win, that thing used to go nuts. Lights were out. <laughs> we had neon lights all over the place. We had the music going. It was a 10, you know, probably like a 30 second, 45 second party. Yeah. And then it was over. Yeah. And then, you know what? take a shower, you know, and go home and let's do it again tomorrow. Awesome. Brilliant!
0: Isn't it funny, too, if you look at the the recent iteration of managers that all got jobs this year, and, and I know some of them, you know some of them, Cora and Boone I worked with at ESPN, great guys, you know, what you call players, managers, Mickey Calloway, man, people love Mickey Calloway, and a guy, heck, a guy that you know very well, Gabe Kapler. All those guys seem cut a little bit, different personalities, of course, but seem cut from that Madden cloth that, yeah, they understand analytics. Yeah, they're going to be modern. Yeah, all that stuff. But they are the type of managers that are supposed to empower their players and not over-police them. This is not, you know, due respect, but it's not Larry Boa from 40 years ago. It's a very different kind of thing now where it's, all right, these are smart guys, they're going to run the clubhouse, but they're going to do so in a way that allows the players to succeed. Madden might have been a decade ahead of his time in terms of all the guys that are being hired now. Heck, Davey Martinez is Madden's guy, literally Madden's guy, and he goes to D.C., and, you know, he's got a chance to be a successful manager too. Also cut from a very similar cloth, a laid-back guy, super smart and all that stuff. I find it so interesting how that legacy, it took a while, but it's really carried forward, and now you look across baseball and it's like, Madden is the oldest manager in baseball right now, which throws slays me. I can't even believe that. And all these other guys wow. look like – I know. Can you believe that? He was like the young hipster guy, and now he's the oldest. And all these other guys who are like 43 years old are managers. Some of them played for Madden. Some of them were the bench coach for Madden. And all of them seem to have some similar DNA in how they lead a clubhouse. I find that so, so interesting.
1: Yes, and I think it's uh just immediately – goes hand in hand with the fact that they see, you know, the industry sees the results. They're like, wait a second, this is what we need. This is what works, you know, especially in an era and a time where, you know, we have so much access to incredible information and everyone, everything is so progressive in this game that you cannot be stagnant. You have to be able to change and adapt with all the external influences that are out there, that if you ignore them, if you just try to ride a, run a tight ship, let's just say, or a closed circuit, you know, where you are totally ignoring where the game is going, you will be left behind. So this is, in a sense, just uh, being a good uh, warrior, you know, and understanding the art of war. Like, if you see yourself, this is where the industry is going, this is where my opponents are doing, you know, they're going to have the absolute edge unless... I also start utilizing all the resources that are available to me, and now you see teams go immediately for that type of uh personality manager manager that's able to handle and marry the you know baseball sense with the analytics and not only that, you have to be able to communicate it to the players, and still to this day, the players are a little bit in between. So a lot of players love the analytics and others hate the analytics. You know, so as a leader you have to be able to dissect what you need, be able to communicate it to a player and simplify things to the point where a player is able to use it to his advantage to become a better performer. That's a very difficult thing to do. Gabe Kappler, you just mentioned Callaway, Cora, these guys, you know, Dave Martinez These guys are experts at that. They have incredible people skills, but at the same time, they have an amazing knack for all the new technology and all the new formulas that are being used right now to better the game and to give you a better chance at winning. That is awesome right there. Uh, So that's just the industry catching on. And, you know, Joe Madden was definitely a pioneer. He was a trailblazer. And now all of a sudden... Everyone understands the value of that, and they're following suit.
0: Just a few more questions here. I want to ask you about my favorite Carlos Pena stat of all time. I love this stat. I've talked about it so many times. <laughs> uh, and it's not an obvious one. It's not about home runs or RBIs or anything like that. And it's not even like a complicated mathematical formula like a newfangled stat or anything. Here's what it is. <laughs> the first 25 times in your career that peop- the team shifted against you and you attempted a bunt – you went 15 for 25, bunting against ship. That's a 600 batting average, my friend, 600. And, you know, this is at a time when you're hitting 40 bombs, when you're making all-star teams, and due respect, but David Ortiz ain't bunting. You know, guys, are general- <laughs> Albert Pools isn't bunting. And you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to lay one down. What goes through <laughs> your mind? Because on one hand, you know, three-run homers pay the bills, get you all-star teams, get you rich and famous and all that stuff. How do you subjugate your – subvert your ego and say, you know what? I'm going to lay one down here. I'm going to take my base because they're giving it to me. They're shifting. No problem. I'm going to do this thing. When and how do you decide to do that? And how did you get so good at bunting? Nobody seems to bunt anymore and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make it work.
1: You know what's crazy is the other day, Jonah, I was – uh just the other day. I'm talking about four four days ago. Yeah. I was in New Hampshire, and I went to visit the Toronto Blue Jays uh, minor league ball club there because there are a couple prospects there that are pretty good. Vladdy. And I got Vladdy (laughs) Vladdy Guerrero, Jr. You also have Bo Bichette. Also, you have uh, uh, BGO. It's there also. Uh, So this team is stacked. Watch out for the Blue Jays coming up, by the way. They have a great farm system. So all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, can I hit? And I ended up hitting with them in batting practice. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, Joan, and I can still go deep because I went deep like yeah, 20, 24 it. times, 25 times. <laughs> but remember, as I'm getting ready to hit batting practice, I was bunting. Yes. And I was like, wow, I'm 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 still pretty good at this. You know, of course, it's batting practice. But I would set the angle. Yeah. And now I have no worries whatsoever as far as how hard I hit it. So that makes it a lot easier. All I had to do was just meet, let the ball meet the bat and the, the ball would... Uh, shoot to left field if I kept the angle, you know, towards the third base side. Um, And I really got good at that. I practiced it so much to the point that this day, out of bed, I could do it uh, Mm. with pretty good consistency. Um, Let me tell you that it's very nerve-wracking. You know, middle of the game, you know, there is, you know, you look at the scope of things, you look at the environment, you look at the, the ecosystem of the moment, and you're like, this is not the right time to do this,
0: right? <laughs>
1: but other times you're like, this is a no brainer. Yeah, this is no brainer. I could hit home run, yeah, but I'm hitting in the mid two hundreds. You know, people talk all the time that that's my weakness, that I don't hit for batting high, high, high batting average. Let me pick up a couple points, and I, they need a base. We need a base runner. Yeah, you know that was the no brainer, and I would do it mm. later on another time that this you will love this yes. um stat actually bunted with two strikes.
0: Oh, that's very dumb
1: yes. <laughs> so check this out. And this one was something that we came on uh on my own actually because I started calculating, wait a second, with two strikes my batting average is, you know, like .80. Oh wow. You know? I mean I mean, you know, point zero eight, yeah, you know, whatever it is. You know, I was sitting under a hundred, let's put it that way. Yeah. So I was like, wow. So Let's say I um, there's a moment where I need to hit a home run. Okay, I'm going to hit, but when I get to two strikes, and they're shifting me, you know, I have a less than you know, I have an eight percent chance of actually actually getting a hit. Yeah. Why don't I lay it down here? This is perfect because what's the altern- The alternative strike out. You know, uh, hit point. You know, under a hundred. So I started doing this with two strikes as well, and I actually had pretty good success. So I ended up hitting with two strikes every time I scored up. I think it was somewhere around 400, wow. You know, uh, which is better than an average under 100. Yes. So it's funny that we're even talking about this, but that's something that I had to think about because that's exactly what they were doing. They were shifting me and taking those hard-hit balls in the hole away from me, and it was frustrating.
0: Hmm. I love all that stuff. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about the transition to MLB Network. Your career, playing career ends in two, 2014. And, uh, I mean, people knew about you as a player. I can remember going into that clubhouse and I wasn't a B writer, so I didn't know people well or whatever, but I just would stand at a distance and it'd be the first day of spring training. I remember the first day of spring training, I walked in in 2009 to that clubhouse and Mark Topkin walks in and the TV guy Callis and everybody else walks in and you're the mayor, man. Like you, you were like Sean Casey, you know, just like friendly and guys, I missed you so much. And it was, it seemed very, it was very genuine, you know, it was cool. And you always had that personality that was, infectious and positive and all that stuff and, uh, you know, so well-spoken in two different languages and, and obviously a student of the game and all that stuff. It, it's like in retrospect, it's like, well, obviously this guy should be on television. Totally makes sense. Was that always in the cards for you when you were talking to your agents and, and all that stuff? It was like the second that I retire, I want to be on TV? Or did it just kind of land in your lap? Because I find that so interesting that the thing that seemed like it would be the perfect fit ended up being the perfect fit. And now, surprise, surprise, you're really good at your job.
1: Thank you so much for saying that. That's flattering that you're saying that I'm good at my job. But for even sure. more flattering that you said that I am like the major, like, like you know, <laughs> we talking about Sean Casey. Yeah, That is such a huge compliment because I have so much respect for Sean. He's the man. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I didn't really think that far ahead. I'm embarrassed to say because I wasn't like thinking – Okay, I, when I retire, I'm gonna go onto TV. I did not think that. Yeah, that's you know, like being honest with you and with myself. I was like, wow, I really didn't see this coming. I knew, you know, that the importance of when I was interviewed to represent my team, represent my family, my culture, with class, and to be well spoken, and to uh, uh, make sure that we always put forth our best uh, effort. You know, to give you know the right answer, or, or at least try to give an answer whenever, even if the if the if the question was difficult, I, I felt the importance of being responsible and standing there, even when things were going bad. Yeah. You know, I always kept that in mind. Now that that was all going to result, you know, the same thing. For example. Uh, I, I knew that, in order for me to give good interviews, I needed to be well read yeah you know I needed, if I wanted to represent myself well when I was in front of a camera, I needed to prepare myself, my vocabulary had to um to increase and and to to improve my way of formulating sentences and ideas had to be up to par or beyond you know that was important why my mother, my mother mm. was always telling me don't speak like that, you know when I was a kid in Spanish, the last way today. I can speak a very presidential Spanish, you know, uh, modesty aside, and I can do the same <laughs> in English, you know, modesty aside. Yeah, But, you know, that was my mother. So that was the only reason why I cared so much because it was embedded on my mind to care about that, to represent myself, my family, my culture, my, my country with pride. And that's something that I took, um, I, I focused upon, right? Well, after I'm done playing, I get a call. I get a call. I did totally out of the blue. Hmm. And it was my friend now, an agent, um, Mark. And Mark left us, And he's like, hey, um, look, man, I've been watching you for, for all this time. And you could be pretty good on TV. I mean, what do you think? I start kind of like just seeing what opportunities are out there. And. At the, th- at the time, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm going to go play baseball. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? right. <laughs> so I I thought I had, ever, you know, that, that baseball was never going to end. Mm. Um, but we agreed that he was definitely going to s- seek opportunities until finally in, in October of 2014, he comes and says, look, there is an opportunity at the MLB Network. And I had been already vis- to visit here. I had been on the panels before. Mm-hmm. And they said, if you want to go this route, you can. You know, And I basically had to decide, like, do I go back for spring training or do I go into the network? And for me, it was kind of a, a no-brainer, even though I must say that it was kind of painful to come to terms with the end of your baseball career. And the start of a new one was actually very exciting, but to end the play you understand, that was difficult because I still felt capable as far as physically was concerned. I felt great. I felt like I could still do it, but things had changed. The opportunities were not there anymore, um, and it was uh, a lot more difficult to break in. Uh, so when I saw that situation, my wife and I, we had a conversation. We prayed about it, and then we made the decision, and uh, I said, you know what? I'm going into the network, and wow, I am so happy that I did that. Um, it was at the right time in my career. My kids were just getting uh, into Little League. My daughter was coming up into uh, that age uh, of middle school and it was like, wow, this is perfect. Hmm. And, and now I could honestly say that I am living the best years of my life with my wife, with my kids and I, have, I don't regret that decision at that moment. I'm glad that I made it when I did.
0: I love it. It's great. Uh, one last question I want to ask you just uh, sticking with MLB Network as well. Uh and I've only I've done a hand a little bit of TV, including MLB and ESPN and all that stuff. And I did not play, so it's gonna be a totally different perspective for me. But what I find when I would go into the room and there'd be like, you know, you said you have the planning meeting or whatever, and you're with a guy like Mark Mulder or Alex Cora, or John Smoltz, Smoltz is great, all these guys would be in the room, Cliff Floyd, and they would all bring something to the table, you'd be like, Oh, wow, that's interesting. And obviously you have years and years of expertise being on the field, but I would guess Maybe even in particular talking to ex pitchers, that if you're around lighter or smoltz or a guy like that, that they might bring something that you're like, wow, that's a point of view that's a little bit different than mine. It, it's the learning process that I loved and have continue to love about you know the rare time that I do get to do some TV or stuff like that is being around different perspectives and different mindsets. Uh, how have you found that to be the case? Again, acknowledging you have a wealth of experience on your own, but different points of view can sometimes make for some really, really interesting conversation and some really fun debate.
1: Yes, uh, it's something that I actually enjoy quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, even though I'm, I'm, I know that, like you mentioned, okay, I have my own experience. Of course. I make my own studies, my own research and all that stuff as far as preparing for for the shows and, and to always bring some substantial Uh, content to the viewers and to make sure that I'm teaching and all that. All that being said, there's something very important. And I think in life, okay, it's the fact that we must understand that maybe our points of views are not always the correct one, Hmm. or at least, let's just say, the only one, (laughs) the only way of doing certain things. So when you have that type of attitude, now I go into a meeting with my mind open waiting to learn Hmm. i mean and you are absolutely right when you have cliff floyd there you know john smoltz pedro martinez jim told and they're talking hitting i was like uh, or pitching you know depending uh, on what your position was i'm sitting there like oh my gosh that's how you thought about that Hmm. that's how you saw the same thing that i see Right, But I worded differently or I interpreted differently, even though it was exactly the same thing that we're talking of, speaking of, you saw that whole entire situation differently than I did. That's how your mind clicked. And I feel like there's so much growth there. That's why now, honestly, when you ask me, you know what people say, do you regret anything? In, do you have any regrets in life? You know what? I am – it upsets me when people say, I got no regrets. hmm. Why? Because I'm like, what? So in all these years you've learned nothing? <laughs> you know, all these years you would have you would do exactly what you've done again, even your mistakes? Yeah. Because that's the question. Right. You know, I know it sounds it sounds, you know, uh, epic to say I have no regrets. Yeah. But now that I look back, I'm like, wow, if I would have known that, what Jim told me said I would have I would apply that to my approach at the play, And maybe instead of hitting 256 286 home runs, sorry about it. Um, <laughs> I would hit <laughs> that's 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 more than I that I that I uh, dreamt of hitting. I I dreamt of hitting one. <laughs> Jonah. So I say that with a lot of uh, gratitude. Six sure. home runs. Maybe I would have hit 300. Yeah. Maybe I would have hit 350. Maybe I would have played for a longer time. And and not only that, on the field, but also in life, how many mistakes do we make? You know, how many people, sometimes the way we go, we say the wrong things and we hurt, you know? So when people say, I have no regrets in life, I wouldn't change a thing. To me, it's like, wow, I mean, that's like, you you haven't matured at all. Hmm. You know, you haven't learned anything. So trust me, when I get into those rooms, you know, when we go into the production meetings, and I am with all these unbelievable Players, ex-players, but not only that. Just quality men, bro. I'm all ears because I want to learn as much as I possibly can from them.
0: Uh, I love all this stuff. You're one of the most positive guys I've ever talked to. Uh, happy early 40th birthday, by the way, next week as well. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you for doing this, Carlos.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Jonah. I'm actually looking forward to the second 40 years of my life coming up. There you go. <laughs> make man. it even better than the first 40. <laughs>